This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is University of Maryland and Brookings Senior Fellow, Professor Carol Graham, to discuss America's ongoing crisis of despair. More specifically, we'll discuss her three related essays published over the last year by the Brookings Institution. Professor Graham, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Nice to be on. Professor Graham's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are likely familiar with the phrase diseases of despair or deaths of despair. The latter phrase, it was used by Princeton economists Dean and Case in their 2020 book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. The phrase refers to the ongoing epidemic of alcohol and drug-related deaths and suicides, moreover among men 25 to 64 years old. Per the CDC, drug overdoses, for example, increased to 90,000 in 2020 or by 30,000 over 2019. However, these diseases of despair do not begin to explain the U.S.'s so-called health disadvantage. Per my conversation with Dr. Steve Wolf a year ago tomorrow, listeners may recall all-cause mortality rates for middle-aged men has inc- have increased significantly over the past few decades, for everything ranging from cancer, cerebrovascular, circulatory, genitourinary, infectious, mental and behavioral, musculoskeletal, nervous, and respiratory diseases. As Dr. Wolf noted in a 2019 JAMA article, U.S. life expectancy has so declined, it will take the U.S. more than a century to reach the average life expectancy of other high-income countries. With me again to discuss this phenomenon is Professor Carol Graham. So, Carol, with that, um, although you don't reference in your three essays, obviously I immediately thought of, and I'm sure you're aware, this is um, this is really uh, the French sociologist Durkheim's 1890s writing, uh, specifically his discussion of anomic suicides uh, or suicides resulting from social breakdown and disintegration. I'm assuming you would agree that it's exactly what Durkheim described. And I note this because, obviously, um, we were made aware of this over 100 years ago. I, I do totally agree with you. Um, one of the things that's hardest to drum home in, you know, sort of the more technical health policy, health um, health trends in economic literatures, of course, is the concept of, of, you know, anomie, just having no sense, no, no sense of wanting to live, being alienated from everything. And I think it's captured in the concept of despair we're trying to use. We measure it technically in our data as literally the opposite of having hope for the future. Like you just have no vision for the future at all. You don't care if you have a future. You're that, you're that alienated and, um, and indeed have no interest in living. And the term that it's actually Anne Case and Angus Deaton, right, right. The, their term for deaths of despair captures it very well. Interestingly enough, I, and I've worked with both of them over time, I, I, I was doing work on 
well-being inequality and well-being in the United States in about 2015 uh, because I initially had done a ton of work on public health, well-being, poverty, inequality all over the third world. I'm from Peru originally. I'm very involved with a public health institution there. And I kept wondering what what was it about poverty in the U.S. that was so much more hopeless, even though it was materially not quite as bad, but it seemed from a, the perspective of hope, alienation, all sorts of things, so much worse here. And I started comparing. Um, I'd gotten these big differences in both life satisfaction today, but also in optimism for the future, hope for the future, um, comparing the poor and the rich in the U.S. and the poor and the rich in Latin America, which, as we know, is a much uh, a more uh, deprived region, lots of inequality, lots of poverty. And yet what I found was that the poor in the U.S. were by far of the four groups, poor and rich Americans, poor and rich Latin Americans, the most, um, the, the least hopeful, uh, lowest levels of life satisfaction, high levels of stress and worry, um, didn't smile very much the day before compared to Latin American poor. And the gaps between the poor and the rich on the answers to these questions in the U.S. were 20 times greater than the gaps between the poor and the rich in Latin America. I mean, in Latin America, again, a much poorer region, the poor were much more hopeful and really weren't very different from the rich. In the U.S., huge differences between the poor and the rich. And I started to explore, this is in, um, I'm a, an advisor, senior scientist at Gallup, and I have all their data, their world poll and their U.S. data. And I started to explore differences across races. Again, this is 2015, a time of the Ferguson riots, the Baltimore riots, a lot of concern about the African-American community and police violence, a sort of echo of 2020 again. Um, but what I found was remarkable, and I first thought I had a coding error, which was that of all groups, I was comparing across low-income groups, so low-income African-Americans, low-income Hispanics, and low-income whites. And what I found was remarkable, which was that low-income African-Americans were the most optimistic group, by mm -hmm. far three times as likely to be higher up on an 11-point optimism scale than low-income whites. Hispanics were close behind African-Americans in terms of being optimistic, which didn't surprise me. It was a, part of it's a cultural trait. Just walk around the streets in Latin America and you get a sense of this kind of cheerful vibe, optimistic vibe. But I was I was quite puzzled. You know, what's going on with poor whites? I literally thought I had a coding error. I looked at the data again. And it, 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 it was this is what I was finding. Again, these are low income groups only. So low income whites compared to low income blacks. Um, and then. Anne and Angus came out with their Deaths of Despair study, the first one, where they showed these this huge rise in mortality among less-than-college-educated um, low-income whites, particularly among men, but also among women. And minorities were barely represented at the time in these deaths. And so literally, I, I was thinking that my data and the mortality data were telling a similar story but my data might explain it a little, you know, at least the human psychology of it more because I have all this well-being data. And indeed, we went on with um, my wonderful PhD student and co-author, Sergio Pinto, to document um, trends in 
ill-being and well-being um, across the country at the county level, at the level of individual and at the level of race. And what we found is that our data on lack of hope and stress and worry matched exactly the profile of low-income, less-than-college-educated whites, the places where they're concentrated, um, and that at the same time, we found that that blacks and Hispanics were barely represented in these deaths. They were much more optimistic about the future. They were less likely to report stress on a daily basis. They were less likely to report pain. So some of this is it's it's not objective. It's a, it's kind of a resilience thing, right? But mm-hmm. but why were minorities so much more resilient to these trends and to these deaths? Because we know, for example, in the decline in manufacturing, blacks suffered a lot. We know that there are lots of things that have made it harder for minorities when their economic declines than for whites. So what was it, right? And it, part of it is indeed an objective health story. When you see the, where deaths of despair concentrate, they tend to be more rural or suburban places. They tend to be predominantly white. They tend to be former manufacturing or mining places. Um, a lot of them were one-horse towns in terms of the firm. When the firm pulls out, everything ends, you know, the supporting industries. But there was more to it than that. Um, and minorities are more likely to live in the cities, which are more vibrant places, economically vibrant, but also culturally more vibrant. And it turns out that some of the resilience of minorities really came from their long history of uh, having informal safety nets, community safety nets, Mm -hmm. extended families, culture that have helped them deal with discrimination and adversity over time. This was not, you know, this is a longer term thing. And indeed, this cha- these differences in optimism and stress and worry survived the Trump election. They stayed the same. Even during COVID, we find that African-Americans, even though they're the most vulnerable group, particularly low-income ones, who've increased in their anxiety and worry during COVID, still are more hopeful for the future than low-income whites. So some of it, you know, was historical resilience. Some of it, I think, just had to do with the fact that Blue-collar whites lost their narrative, right? They, they, they didn't have a narrative of always fighting discrimination. They had a narrative of you work hard, you get ahead, classic American dream narrative. They had privileged access to blue-collar jobs. And their, part of their narrative was very much an individual story. It wasn't about community and culture. It was maybe the Ozzie and Harriet family. The families fell apart when the manufacturing firms and the mining firms pulled out. Um, and they, they not only didn't have another narrative for where they were going next, but they also didn't have the kind of what I call communities of empathy that minorities have had to, to form to deal with adversity and discrimination and that have, in the end, served them very well at tough times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some surveys I've been doing about education beliefs and other things I can talk to or speak to it in a little bit if we, if we have time, but it sort of cements some of this optimism differences across racial groups. Okay, thank you. You do note that one of, the, one of the consequences here is that this age group, you note, and I think your second or third paper, 20% of this age group has permanently dropped out of the, uh, the workforce to show that the extent to which, uh, the, the effect to the extent to which this has had. Um, I, I, I do, I, I have several... Uh, 
I have a question about survey data. You sort of suggested that uh, in your answer. So maybe I'd, I'd like to ask you this this question, though, certainly get it in. What, considering uh, this dynamic has occurred, I mean, this population has suffered flat wages for, you know, 40, 50 years. Since this dynamic has been occurring for such a long while, what's your impression relative to the attention this gets or doesn't get uh, by policymakers, particularly the healthcare industry? What's your understanding of why that is? It's a very complicated question. Um, for starters, this strong belief in the individual work ethic has also comes with a distrust in government, a distrust in taxes, a distrust in welfare. Welfare was for those losers that fall behind, not for us hardworking mm-hmm. blue-collar whites. And so now that those services are, are necessary, there's very mixed take-up and also mixed very mixed attitude about them. A lot of these communities were communities that voted for Trump on a swan swan song that he would help them, which of course he didn't, right? It was all about the successful businessmen, didn't need government, didn't need anything, right? So part part of the reason that the group has been neglected by policymakers has literally been their own attitudes about what they want, what kind of policymakers they want to vote into office. The other part's more complicated. It was just an under no, it was a little known problem till 2015, 2016. Um, we should have been more alert to the opioid crisis, the pill mills, um, and opioids are part of this story. And, you know, Purdue Pharma and others literally pushing painkillers on these same groups because they often were in poor health. They'd done manual labor. They tended to be overweight. Their health standards are terrible like the same group of uh, prime age males out of the labor force that you that you men- mentioned that I've written a lot about are not only in despair but they are also in terrible objective health we have you know objective health indicators for them anything everything ranging from heart to disease to diabetes to um, obesity you know, right yeah obesity is huge and and so a lot of them had worked manual labor and were in pain. And there's kind of a historical precedent. The miners in Appalachia, they used to take different kinds of pain medicine to go back into the mine after being injured. I mean, this is for 100 years. There's a huge history of addiction to pain medicine, which also spread to their spouses who lived lives wondering if their – this was very male industry – if their husbands were coming back or not. So opioid – opioids filled that gap ironically when i mentioned that blacks and hispanics are less likely to report pain there's a two-way causality there and the same with white pain reports so whites addicted to prescription opioids reported pain to get more opioids in addition to real pain um hispanics report and blacks report much less pain in part because they didn't they weren't prescribed opioids very often that turned out ironically to be protective discrimination, unintentional. Life-saving, yes. Yeah. And what we see now, we talked about this cohort. Um, in the When we see there's a, a review of U.S. pain reports by Blanche Flower and Oswald of my latest book um, in the Journal of Economic Literature. It's called Happiness for All, Unequal Hopes and Lives of the American Dream. But they sort of supplement my findings 
by showing that the U.S. is a cunt of all of 30 other countries, many less wealthy than ours, although mainly developed countries. People in the U.S. report more pain on a daily basis than in all these countries. And then a later paper by Arthur Stone and Case Nangas-Deaton finds that typically in most countries we see pain increasing with age, which makes sense. You know, old age just comes with physical pain. It's Mm -hmm. not a great feature of old age, but it's also something that people are expect to have and tend to be able to adapt to unless it's extreme. But now when you look at cohorts, the current middle-aged cohort in the U.S. reports more pain than the old. This is an anomaly. It, it's the only country where we have that. Um, and the, the high pain reports are driven by the less than college educated and much more by whites than minorities. I don't think this is all about opioids. I think opioids played a big role in this. It's also about what we started talking about, a lack of a narrative. It's psychological pain, right? When you're mm-hmm. in despair, you, you'll do anything to end your sort of despair about the future, despair about now. It, it, you know, you have no compelling reason to live. It's, it's tragic, but it, it, it's, it, is, it is true. And in some ways it helps explain why you see low-income whites voting against their own interests. I mean, what did Trump's tax cuts do for them? Nothing. You know, what does, and some of them, you know, there's also a big lack of education story. Some of these same places with very poor health, declining economies, are also advanced cognitive skill deserts. You know, there's just bad education and not much of it. And so if you look at what happened in the voting for, you know, against the ACA Act in several elections, the ACA Act, you find people were surprised that they lost their health care. We're going to lose it when they voted for Trump. They were like, well, but I didn't know that Obamacare was Kentucky care because there was a lot of playing around about what to call it, right? Particularly mm-hmm. in Republican states. And so you also just get very little education, civic education about how the government works, but also how safety net systems work. And that's compounded on a health system that, as you say, is terrible, right? If you if you are low income and you don't have health insurance from your job, you're toast, right? And the other thing that's really sad but also interesting is even when the ACA was rolled out, you know, healthcare in this country is so complicated and individualized and everything else that people in rural places without much education or information when given the option, voted for the highest deductible plan under ACA. Now, that's not because they thought about the fact that the premium was lower. They thought a deductible was a discount, which is tragic. Right. right? So not only is our healthcare system on its own very fragmented and very difficult to navigate, even for very educated people it's it's a chore to understand what's going on and it takes a lot of you know learning and concentration but if you don't have much education it's just really difficult to even know what are what's the best choice for you um and so being insured is difficult getting you know accessing the healthcare system is difficult and in rural places uh as you know probably better than i but, you know, there's been this huge decline of hospitals and ICU beds and good. Mm-hmm. 
and the next hospital is two hours away. And we see that with the COVID mortality statistics, right? So you get these compounding factors where despair interacts with a system that unfortunately discriminates against the poor in unintended ways, in part because of its complexity. When you compare our system to the system in other wealthy countries in the world where people just have national health insurance. They don't think about it. They go to the doctor. They don't have to make 55 choices about what their deductible will be. or what. I mean, at times they have to wait because they have to go to, to a general practitioner before they can go to a specialist. But when you compare that to, you know, not having health insurance and not even knowing the difference between what kind of doctor you need and how you're going to cover it and all sorts of other things, it's a pretty easy choice in my view, but, um, so, and then the other thing is that, um, for the prime age male group, which we've talked about white prime age males out of the labor force are by far the most toxic in the sense of the highest levels of despair, the worst health indicators, really bad health indicators and sort of no other activities or, you know, vision about their community, nothing to sort of motivate them to do anything other than, you know, play video games in your parents' basement as an adult, which is a terrible, it's just a toxic recipe for a horrible life. And it turns out their despair plus opioid addiction or other drug addictions now is so debilitating that, you know, a lot of people talk about moving to opportunity and all these other things. Um, I have an article in social science and medicine on the, the sorry state of primary males out of the labor force, but they won't move. If you put, you know, moving to opportunity in a, in a town 10 miles away, they're not going to go to it. They're, they're, you know, they're just not responding to normal incentives anymore because of all these other things. They're, you know, they're not thinking about their future. And so that in turn creates a sort of level of desperation. That's, that's very hard to, to change with economic incentives. You really have to go much further into psychological issues. Meanwhile, minority and particularly African-American males out of the labor force are much more likely to want to give back to their community or make their community better than our white primate males out of the labor force. They recognize their community is not doing well. They recognize their life may not be great, but they, they want to, they're much more likely to want to participate in the community which is an awful lot better than doing nothing and having no hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The uh, Relative to the Case Deaton book, I'm sure you're well aware their chapter on U.S. healthcare was unsparing in its criticism. Um, yes. So per your point, let me, let me, let me go to, you did, um, you do call for the creation of a new federal interagency task force to try to get at this issue. What, if you were to uh, make you, you just note that you don't say much uh, too much more about uh, other than justifying uh, that the feds need to uh, take on or address this issue. But what would what would this federal age, uh, agency task force attempt to do? You also and I'm assuming this gets at your discussion recommending uh, a certain metrics of well-being that should be tracked or measured. I'm sure that would be part of that. Right. So um, let me start from the first question. 
the reason for recommending a federally led effort was not to recommend a new bureaucracy or a new agency. It's recognizing a couple of things. One, that despair is a barrier to our economic recovery from COVID, to our productivity and health more generally. Um, it's becoming even a national security issue as you get more radicalized out of the labor force, out of society kind of life. We're very vulnerable to conspiracy theories and white supremacy theories and everything else. Um, that this is an issue that is big enough that we can't just move forward and pretend it's not there, mm-hmm. right? Because it shows up in lots of different ways that are harmful to our society as well as to the, the same people themselves. And so that we need to combine the accumulated knowledge we have on community level interventions to reduce despair and isolation um, to, you know, their community level efforts to revive economies. They're operating in separate worlds. And what happens is a lot, and even at the level of federal agencies, say SAMHSA, CDC, you know, HHS and, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're all in big silos. They're not talking to each other every day about some sort of general effort to, for economic recovery. Everybody kind of has their own, whether it's reducing drug addiction or, combat, you know, um, the National Office of Drug Control Policy, which is combating drug trafficking. They're all doing good work. This is not a criticism of them, but there is nobody that can put the whole picture together and say, oh, X should be talking to Y. X, you and Y should be coordinating efforts because you're doing very similar things. And what happens at the local level, and this comes from my work with, you know, local level practitioners in Maryland that deal with the opioid crisis to um, a wonderful center in the UK called What Works Wellbeing, where they do a lot of community level interventions. um, And then, those are made publicly available after they're evaluated for their how successful they are in terms of cost-benefit, and benefit includes well-being benefits, but also how generalizable and scalable they are. You know, they, it can't just work in little community acts over there. You need to get to a point where we know about the things that work more generally. Mm-hmm. For the city of Mount Santa Monica well-being effort to endless, really promising local initiatives to deal with despair and isolation and endless local level initiatives to revive economies. But these people are fighting, you know, they're in the weeds every day or in the forest fire every day. When you think about people working with opioid addiction and other drug addiction, they don't have time to sort of say, Oh, I wonder what's going on in Santa Monica or even know about what the Santa Monica initiative did or, you know, whatever. And that, that, so when we talked about an interagency task force, one of the big benefits would simply to be to have an information clearinghouse, and they could connect the dots at time, provide not so much financial support, although that would be great, that's a bit of a wish, but the logistical support could be equally valuable. You know, a community could come or contact the, the agency or interagency task force and say, hey, we have a terrible opioid addiction problem, we don't know what to do about it, and that they would have collected information on other programs that worked, contacts with other people that have implemented these kinds of um, interventions, and so that community, you know, Z at that point, doesn't have to reinvent the wheel and waste years trying stuff out versus they could look at what others have done and tailor it to their community. 
Um, and I think an equally important is getting the economic recovery people and the the just you know drug addiction and suicide people together in the same virtual room. I you know having understanding what each is doing and how each other's efforts could benefit each other. So it's literally making the whole greater than the sum of its parts, but the parts need to know what the other parts are doing. Right. So I, I didn't, I didn't think it made any sense to propose something bureaucratic or expensive, Mm -hmm. but I see a real need for this. And it's amazing how, even when I've talked to many local level practitioners, they don't know what other places are doing, not because they're not interested. It's just because of how, their precious time is being allocated and it's often putting out forest fires. Um, so that, that's the, that initiative. And the other question was, I, I remember having an answer to it, but what was the other part of the question? Well, you mentioned, uh, um, metrics of well being. Oh yeah. Yeah. How could I forget that? <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> Sorry. The point is we built in the work I did where I talked about matching metrics of ill-being and well-being with the deaths of despair trends and we found these very robust matches we 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 built a vul- interactive vulnerability indicator where you can look at places where stress and worry deaths of despair coincide at the county level around the country where lack of hope is also a big marker of these things and that coincides where places are more optimistic and hopefully doing better we've put in now covid deaths as well as um as well as deaths of despair or in the process of updating it. But the idea is like, this is me and my Brookings office working with Gallup data and CDC data and whatever other data I can find on the death from the Hopkins data on COVID, but also me and my PhDs, but also um, using proprietary data that I happen to get because I'm an advisor to Gallup, which is a wonderful polling organization. But a lot of other countries now, the UK, New Zealand, others, Canada's moving in this direction, have nationally available, publicly available well-being data. So you can track, you know, not just the country's average, which doesn't tell you that much, but, um, you know, different cohorts, different ages, different districts or counties um, on where they are in terms of life satisfaction, optimism for the future, stress, worry, the opposite of optimism for the future, which is essentially despair. And what we find is well-being trends are pretty stable across populations, um, except for the U.S., and I can say a bit more about that in a second. Um, But when you see a big change in a particular population cohort or in a particular place, like a big drop, something's going on. Because for a big change, you need things to be not going well mm-hmm. and that could alert you to some to, to that there's a problem now in the same way we have a historical paper on optimism and longevity longevity and what we found is that the drops in optimism among less than college educated men began in the late 70s with the first wave in manufacturing um, the deaths of despair started 20 years later We also saw optimism increase at the same time for women and for African-Americans because civil rights and gender rights improved. But the point is, had we been tracking well-being, we would have picked up on a big problem in a group that's now dying at at a rate that's enough to pull up our overall mortality rates. 
that's not small, right? And lots of other problems as well. And so that just by simply tracking well-being metrics as part of our official statistics, I'm not talking about GN, replacing GNP or GDP, I never would, but these things tell us different things. And it's just like having another warning indicator on your dashboard. You don't expect your gaslight to tell you that your oil needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. You have two indicators as you drive. Well, that's kind of the same way we should be navigating societal welfare, right? Taking society's temperature. And, you know, it's simple. It's not expensive. The, The Brits have four tried and true questions in their official surveys. Each question takes 30 seconds to answer. So you're now talking about a huge amount of information about your society and its temperature, so to speak, which is what I, I think about this. You know, like you, if your kid doesn't feel well, you take their temperature and you don't send them to school with people. So something's up somewhere. Shouldn't you know a little more? What do the numbers look like? And so for a total of two minutes in, you know, one of the Fed surveys or CDC surveys that take an hour and a half to administer, you could have a huge wealth of information that we still lack. Like even now during COVID, we're seeing a lot of the uh, federal agents doing um, doing a um, starting to track ill-being and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, well, ill-being, so anxiety and depression because of fear about mental health crises during COVID. But the problem is that they're not including best practice. They're not following best practice. It's already been developed outside the U.S. by the OECD, by other countries, by us as part of a National Academy of Sciences panel. We had input on these best practices, us being in the U.S., but we're not following it. So what we know is anxiety and depression trends have have, have increased in during COVID. Um, we have pretty good detail now on that in Census Pulse and CDC and HHS and all sorts of other surveys. But we don't have baseline life satisfaction scores. So what that means, which actually have been very stable, the life satisfaction didn't change that much. So it, it fell during lockdowns and then increased as people back to before because people realized that, you know, things were being done about the pandemic. It may not be great, but that, you know, they could survive it. And there was also a bit of an empathy effect, just how badly others were doing. But the point is, when you're trying to measure increases in anxiety and depression, You want to know the difference between what we call the intensive margin or the extensive margin. So the intensive margin is people who are already vulnerable to depression and anxiety getting more anxious and depressed. That's a problem. But that's different from people who weren't anxious and depressed before and maybe getting more anxious and be more likely to report depression. But they still have high levels of life satisfaction and optimism like African-Americans do or as we find. So. Just tracking well-being regularly should be as simple as tracking the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. And we have all sorts of examples of how to do it in a very simple way. And we're seeing a you know a start happening, which is wonderful to see, but we're still a step a big step behind. And so now for the COVID year, which was a huge year of change in our mental health as a society, in our lives and in our health, objective health. We, you know, we see physical health, not objective health. We, you know, we're, we're missing one of the big measures we should know about. And again, I know about it because I'm involved in a hundred other surveys, but that's not helpful at the national policymaking level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things the task force group 
recommended was just having a, you know, a sentinel well-being indicator, which would be life satisfaction and a couple of more questions in our national statistics. It's not rocket science. It's not very expensive. Thank you, Carol. That I, I appreciate the, the discussion about metrics because usually that's where all this has to start appropriately. So with that, uh, we're at our time, but I do appreciate this overview uh, of your work. Um, let's hope people at uh, HHS and Elsewhere can hear this and start working towards uh, developing this information. So with that again, Carol, thank you very much. Thank you, David. And I agree, you know, what gets measured gets managed. What isn't measured, we don't know about. Right. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. You too. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.